Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus-year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by my uh, esteemed colleagues, Dr. Tommy Keene, Dr. Paul Jean, Dr. Grace Sutanto, and Dr. Peter Lee. These friends need no introduction but that's who we have in the room today if you're trying to uh, discern the voices. I heard, I heard one person say that they have a hard time discerning voices. Really? Yeah. Mm. That, 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 I, think, I think the long-timers don't have an issue. Right. But I think if you're, if you're new to it, it's, it's just a bunch of guys talking. I think that that's how you tell the difference between being a super that's fan right. and just a regular fan is you can start to tell the difference. I think it actually communicates the catholicity of our professorship. That's right. It's just great that's, unity. Yeah. 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 It's hard. Yeah, no disagreements. That's right. Yeah. That was Grace Sutato. <laughs> that was Grace Sutato, by or the way. Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you brothers here. We're going to need this catholicity because we're talking about a topic that has <laughs> wrapped up in it quite, quite a lot of weight and conflict and tension, and that's the topic of the harem ban. And I could just leave it at that, and half the people listening would say, what is the harem ban? What we're talking about is that command uh, that goes under the title in the uh, Hebrew Bible of Cherem, okay, the Cherem, or Cherem, rather, uh, 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 the ban that was put on, amongst others, the people who live in the land of Canaan during the time of the conquest. Now, the reason why I say amongst others is that there were some who were kind of placed into it because of the way that they treated Israel, even though they weren't specifically in the land. I'm thinking of the Amalekites here. So think of, uh, you know, First Samuel 15 when Saul goes out and he's supposed to go out and, and, and put the ban on the Amalekites. That's because they've been clumped into this group of those who opposed the people of God in the Exodus, okay? So the word there, harem, it's a common Semitic word. We actually, uh, it makes its way into English through another way, um, that uh, Arabic loan word that we have, harem, right? A harem, you know, a group of concubines or wives that are set aside for, um, uh, you know, for a king or for a noble person uh, in, in Arabic-speaking communities. Um, that word actually is related, and, and it has the meaning of being set aside for a special use, okay, set aside for special function, okay. So in this case, it's important to remember that when we're talking about the harem ban, the, the logic of the harem ban is that the people who are in the land are set aside for God. And what does that mean? They're under the ban. That means not uh, they're not to be plundered or spoiled. They are to be um, completely eradicated before the armies of Israel. All right, so with that little introduction, um, you can imagine all of the things that spring out of that. People ask the question, how could, a, how could a just God do something like this? Right? That's a toughness of the text. Um, what does that mean for us today as Christians living in the world today? Is the harem ban still in effect? Okay? How do we understand this in light of Christ's doctrine to love your enemies? These are all really good questions. So before we jump to those, let's first start off with just a, a, a broader introduction of what the Bible says about the harem ban. So let me hand it over to Dr. Lee, our resident expert on all things Pentateuch. How's that for a setup? Great. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, when we talk about uh, harem, and, and it's obviously a very difficult concept ethically, and it has been for, for a lot of people for a very long time, 
as we're focusing our thoughts here, particularly on text as opposed to just kind of concepts in general, the text that comes to mind uh, immediately to me is Deuteronomy chapter 20. Mm. It's the entire chapter, but um, it's really starting at verse 10 to about verse 18. That's really the focus of the the harem warfare. So Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, you know, we had a podcast, as you know, and we could go on and talking about how important Deuteronomy is, but it really sets up the kind of the, the constitutional standard for Israel as, they're in the, in, as they enter into the land. These are the, the guidelines, the laws that you're going to follow as you live in the land of Canaan. And then it gives uh, a lot of prescriptions of what la- life is going to be like. And one of the prescriptions that are given there is Deuteronomy 20. It's essentially their policy of international relations in a manner of speaking. Now, what's interesting in chapter 10, and I won't read the whole thing, but just summarizing uh, verses 10 to 15, uh, talks about how Israel is to deal with uh, nations and city groups outside of the land of Canaan. And outside of the land of Canaan, they are to pursue peace when at all possible. If they attack you, then you have the right to defend yourself. Um, but it makes a clear distinction that the land of uh, the cities in the land of Canaan itself is different. You don't you don't offer peace to them, and that's starting at verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And verse 16 following says that to the cities in the land, you don't offer peace, but what you are to do is to harem them, and that's where we get our word harem. Um, it's translated, it's loosely translated in different ways. Some will translate it as the ban or to ban them. Um, most others, taking, uh, Scott, your sense of setting aside uh, that idea will translate it. It's wordy, but I think it gets to the heart of it mm-hmm. to devote them to destruction. Yeah. And that's generally the way. So you, whenever you see that, uh, and it's not just here in Deuteronomy, this, this harem word, whether it's a verb or a noun, is, is found all throughout Deuteronomy. It's found all throughout Joshua. It's not all throughout the historical books. Part of the problem is Israel didn't continue the practice mm-hmm. of harem. That's why it's absent. But uh, whenever you see a translation of to devote to destruction, that's really c- translating one word, that this word, uh, harem. And, um, and so that's the policy, that's the difficulty, that when the Israelites enter into the land, what they are to do is to not offer peace to the nations and the cities that they engage there. They are to harem them. They are to devote them to complete destruction. And that's what we read about in the book of Joshua, and uh, and what you're supposed to read about in the subsequent generations of uh, uh, Israelites afterwards. So, so as I think about why one of, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this is a tough text, but when I think about, you know, those who would look at the Bible and say, you know, you hold up the scriptures as this moral tome, and it's not that. Look at these texts, and this always comes up, you know, and it comes up along the, you know, the, the description of, we, the Bible is supporting genocide. Is that a fitting, you know, uh, fitting definition that this is this is a kind of genocide, or would you distinguish it from that? I, I would, uh, and and I take I have a certain take is um, the rationale behind harem is not political; it's it's theological, and that's what drives the ethic. Um, the land is, because this is, the, the land in the broader context of the Old Testament is described as essentially a big macro temple. 
meaning the land is holy. This is where God dwells, and this is where God's going to dwell with his people. Therefore, uh, because this is a, a kind of a temple land, only that which is holy can be in the temple land. That means the people of God can be there because they are, have been made holy uh, by the Lord. The law is holy. The Canaanites are not holy. Uh, they are common, and this is the reason why the land essentially has to be purged. That's essentially what the act of harem is. It is cleansing the land of all that which is unholy. So harem is the kind of programmatic way Deuteronomy describes it, but um, in theory there are other, are other ways in which uh, if the Israelites chased the, the Canaanites out, that seems to be adequate. They just mm-hmm. cannot be in the land. Is is the point? And so, uh, I mean, so it's it's r- interesting because it's racial in one sense because it's Canaanites and Malachites, but et cetera, et cetera. But it's also it's relevant not because of race so much, or at least how we would talk about race, but because the land is sacred. Yeah, I think the, the putting it in the context of racism would be a gross misrepresentation. Yeah. Uh, we have to remember the henotheism of the ancient world. Uh, if you were a Canaanite, you were a Baal worshiper. If you were a Moabite, you worshiped a Molech. If you, um, if you were a Babylonian, you worshiped Marduk. I mean, each nation had their own kind of patron deity. So the cleansing of the Canaanites was not a racial act. It was a, a theological act. Mm. They are not, if a Canaanite became an Israelite and, and, and embraced Yahweh as his deity, then they're fine. And in fact, we have record of that in the book of Joshua. Um, uh, Rahab uh, was a Canaanite woman, but yet she became a God-fearer, embraced Yahweh, and she was actually received as an outstanding uh uh, a woman in good standing amongst the Israelite community. Uh, Ruth, we have a whole book dedicated mm-hmm. to this, uh, who was clearly a Moabite, but yet she was received within the Israelite community, not haremed. And so, um, so th- this is uh, so to paint it as a picture of racism, I think is 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 really missing the point. Anachronistic. It, it is. It is. It it's a lot of the racial tension that we read about in the Old Testament really are just more. Um, uh, uh, make having that proper distinction, as Scott mentioned, uh, of that which is holy as being distinct and set aside from that which is um, uh, which is unholy. Yeah, yeah. I think I think seeing it as, as holiness and justice is really key. I mean, you see this when the harem ban really is first suggested back in Genesis 15, and God is promising to Abraham the land, and He names out all of the people in the land of which the Amorites is one group. But then He He seems to offer. It seems like at different points you can use different group names as kind of you know placeholders for everybody in the land. And in Genesis 15, it's Amorites. Later, it'll be Canaanites. Um, but He says, "I'm going to give you this whole land. This is for you and your seed." But then he says this remarkable thing at the end of Genesis 15 when he's having this covenant ratification ceremony or right beforehand. He says, but I will, I will subjugate you to a foreign land, which we all know to be Egypt. And then he tells us why. We actually get the reason why they're in slavery in Egypt. And it's because the sin of the Amorites, that's the people living in the land, hasn't yet reached its full, which is, is kind of a remarkable suggestion because he's saying it's not about their ethnicity. It's not about race, Right. This is about justice, and if I were to give you the land now, right, if I were to give you the land now, it would not be just. 
And so I will wait. I'll, I'll even, to your detriment, Israel, you'll be in slavery in Egypt for uh, four centuries or four generations. And then you'll come out. But when you come out, then it'll be just. It'll be a kind of thing that is just. And we have to remember this is a God of the universe who knows the hearts of every human making this judgment. So I mean, you start off with that. And then to your point, Peter, the very first Canaanite they meet who's under the ban not only is invited into Israel, but comes into the line of David and ultimately the line of Jesus, that's Rahab. Not only that, shortly thereafter, we have the Gibeonites who enter into the false treaty. And you think, well, obviously they'll be destroyed. And the Lord says, no. Well, Joshua has mercy on them and he's not censured for that. And then later on, if, you're, if you keep reading along, you stick with the story, after the restoration from exile, the Gibeonites are included and the people coming back into the land. Now suddenly they're all now a part of Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, so so as a as a as a kind of holy war, I'm putting that in quotes, as a doctrine, this Karam ban is clearly not ethnic. It's not racially based. It's about justice and holiness. And it has all kinds of ways that you can bring mercy upon yourself. Okay. And not only that, to your point, as you made in Deuteronomy, it's clear this is only for people in the land. This is not for outside the land. Moses gives them instructions. Right. Actually, Israel is, is, is supposed to be quite peaceful and uh, dip- diplomacy-based. Non-expansionist. Yeah. Well, and if they expand, it's through diplomacy. That's mm. how they're supposed to expand. Mm. If they expand, go out and make sue for peace with the nations around you. So it's, so it's interesting that unlike imperial forces of the ancient world, they're told to actually engage in trade and diplomacy, which becomes for us one of those just war theories that war and, and force is only used after everything else has been uh, you know, exhausted, every other option has been exhausted. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting doctrine that I think many people misunderstand if you just put it under the concept of holy war. Yeah, you know, I appreciate the way like we're talking about this because uh, this is sort of implicit or explicit. But, you know, when people struggle with this question, um, learning to think theologically is just in itself like a different discipline. So when this question gets asked, typically it's personal, uh, whether people have experienced um, genocide, you know, in some shape or form. And so they see a kind of surface similarity and they think, oh, the Bible endorses genocide as well. But you know, I have found it to be helpful to ask people to consider this question. Like, for you, as you're thinking about this, are you assuming that it's possible that God can be unjust? See, like, that's sort of like the assumption behind this question. Like, well, there's God can be either just or unjust. Let's look at the data, right? But what's been helpful, I think, in a lot of my pastoral discussions is, like, wouldn't you agree that the God of the Bible seems very committed to justice? You see that all throughout, but climactically in the cross. And so when you invite them to start with that assumption, and that's not just like an undue bias towards like faith, but it's like, yeah, the God of the Bible is clearly just. Then when you help them overcome that hurdle first, I think they're more open to these kinds of discussions where, okay, so let's look at the text a little bit more carefully. And that's exactly, you know, what you guys have been talking about, just thinking about these questions more theologically instead of like, and it's hard, you know, as human beings, we do this, but instead of thinking about existentially or personally, but first ask this question of, do you think it's even possible for God to be unjust? And that in itself is, I think, part of the problem that people think that that's 
this is an option versus let's start with the assumption that God is just. Well, well on that note, like on the note of justice, and you mentioned this too, it's about holiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are the Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, yeah. what are they being punished for? You got pretty far down the list. That was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, for a New yeah. Testament guy. Yeah, yeah, good. I'm impressed. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So why are we listing them all out? Well, what well, it, Israel is going into the land, and I can't help but see something similar to the judgment that comes upon Egypt in yeah. this regard. You know, that Egypt is uh, yeah. judged um, It's I- in this respect, and then Israel is supposed to go into the land as a kind of yeah. angel of death in some yeah. respects to bring a similar justice on the Amalekites, the Paris. What are they be? What are those groups being punished for? What's well, the crime there, yeah, I mean, I think so. Actually, the list is interesting in, in Genesis fifteen. The list of the people in the land. So the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Hittites are there. The Amorites, the Canaanites. You have all of these different groups who are mentioned. Nice flex. Um, well, no, I didn't do them. I didn't do them all. Um, but the, the, there, there's all of these different groups mentioned. Some of them, like Hittites, would have been members of major civilizations, and you can see how they've. They've, they've, their influence has dripped down into the Levant out of Turkey, the modern-day Turkey. And so you realize this is, this is about the people in the land. Again, to make the point about it, it's not, this is not an ethnic thing. It's about the people in the land. Now, we start to get pictures both in the conquest and then later in the prophets as they are, and this is interesting because Israel will now become, leading up to the exile, they'll become as wicked as the people in the land. And mm-hmm. so the Karim band will functionally be turned around toward them and now it's not an officially kind of a formal way but that's the argument of the of the prophets that you've become as bad as those people used to be and the examples that we see are widespread ex- exploitation rights widespread oppression mass uh massive um performance of child uh sacrifice in the worst possible ways you know um, the ways that they do that, that they would do that was terrible. Um, Ezekiel talks about now he, he's using the imagery of the of the Canaanites, but then he says you Israel are doing the same thing, and he talks about the fact that there are valleys filled with children's bones, yeah. and everyone can go out and see them because that's what you do to your own youth. Archaeology has shown us that uh, families would build. Um, this actually is an interesting in terms of cornerstone imagery in the New Testament but would have a cornerstone of their house where there would be uh, a tomb to their firstborn that they would sacrifice and that the mother would have to live in that house and operate in that house right next to the bones of her firstborn child that she had killed to bless the house and to bless their household and that this was a common practice. Um, I think so, so theologically we can point to just widespread oppression of the weak and of the poor and the benefit of the very few, okay, who are living as if they were sort of demigods. Um, so that's the practice that we see going on. I think emotionally, you know, we, we, we may say, well, I can't understand that kind of mass corporate judgment. Uh, I think we can kind of understand it, mm-hmm. though. If people have been around, yeah. you know, if you've been paying attention for the last hundred years, um, you know, when, when the Allies went into Germany, there wasn't a lot of discussion about um, making sure you didn't blow up too many buildings, right? You know, as a matter of fact, the 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 you know the the, uh, 
Anzac and American soldiers held back from Berlin to let the Russians go in first because the idea was that justice had to be done mm -hmm. because of how Russia had been invaded by Germany. And everybody across the board agreed with that. Now, I know we can, we can debate that. We can debate whether or not that was a good idea and all of those things. But I think psychologically, after you started seeing what was going on in the concentration camps, you saw the evil of Germany, there was this idea that, yeah, yeah this justice has to be done. Right. There, there's kind of a mass justice that has to be done. So I think we can relate to it. I'm not saying that's the exact same thing. But in terms of, Paul, to your point, the kind of emotional psychological space, I think we can relate to it more than we might think that there's a that there's a generation, that there's a culture that is so deeply corrupt and oppressive that it has to be wiped away. Yeah, I don't want to overstate this, but even Tommy's question, like usually when the question of like holy wars asked, it's related to these tribes that or people groups that are less well known but no one seems to contest uh how god judges egypt because they know the full story yeah. of like what egypt did to israel but not again not that people are going to be totally okay with it but when they're like oh that's the historical background oh this is what happened then it's at least the idea that this is genocide disappears because genocide usually assumes like you have an innocent or seemingly innocent people group and then you have oppressors. But the story is much more complicated as you guys mm -hmm. are spelling out. I find well, the oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just say that's a really good point. I think about Egypt, right? Yeah. And, and to add to that too, Moses doesn't get to pick and choose who mm -hmm. he's going to bring Karen Band against. This is not a human decision. This is this is God's divine identification of who it is who goes under the judgment. It's not something that like Joshua and Moses get to pick and choose which armies they want to put under the ban and which yeah. armies they don't. I guess I see, uh, you know, we talked about the, the land typologically, uh, but it's typological that is of the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, where we see the full, radiant, uh, visible, uh, glory, holy God, sort of the Isaiah 6 thing in full you know, full consummate, uh, consummated glory. Uh, and if we think of the land truly as a type of that eternal kingdom, what we're seeing is a type of that ethic here in the land, and that again explains the apparent brutality of it. In the eternal kingdom, the ethics are, you know, it's either you are a blessed uh, child of God, washed clean by the blood of Christ, or you are a reprobate condemned for all eternity. There is no shades of gray. It's either just one or the other. But you're seeing kind of a type of that mm. in the land, which is why either you are a holy, um, uh, uh, in the holy community of God, or you are a Canaanite, essentially, now subject to uh, divine wrath. But, you, but, but the underlying importance of, uh, of, um, of harem has got to be seen in the holiness of God, a theological reality. The more yeah. we apply it in a social-political context, the more problematic it really becomes. So if we see it, uh, so for example, anything that's going on today is not harem warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's not the justification of what is happening in any way in, in our current day politics. Uh, the land, in other words, is not holy right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and for that reason, uh, however we want to uh, uh, determine our ethics of the Middle East, uh, excuse me, our policy of the Middle East has been done on political grounds, but not theological. That gets into mm -hmm. all sorts of weird applications and things of that nature. And, and this is what sets aside um, harem and the conquest in the book of Joshua, and as it's mandated in Deuteronomy, 
distinct from any Islamic concepts of jihad, and people will always make that type of a, a parallel, and it isn't that for, for exactly these reasons. Yeah, there, the, so much happens in that transition into the New Testament through the lens of resurrection, and all, you know the whole Old Testament points us to the death and resurrection of Christ, but when Christ is raised and sits enthroned in, that, in the heavenly spaces, everything sort of shifts and so any sort of straightforward application of these principles in the old covenant to the new is it, it all applies but it applies in different and sometimes complex and complicated ways the land the holy land right now there's no is no place on earth uh, we can go to first peter one right the 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 inheritance the kingdom is heavenly right now yeah. jerusalem above the jerusalem above it cannot be defiled. It cannot be corrupted. It's uncorruptible, kept in heaven, guarded by Christ himself and his angels. So there is no military mm-hmm. protection from the church that's needed here. Um, and at this point, what? how does the church protect itself, protect its holiness, its purity? Well, through church discipline, which is spiritual in nature, not uh, carnal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's where we get the doctrine of the spirituality of the church and the church's relationship with the, the nations as a whole. All of that has to be interpreted through the lens of resurrection and the heavenly ascension of Christ. Someday it'll be a new heavens and a new earth, but right now the kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. Yeah. And so all of that Old yeah. Testament language has to be interpreted through that and transition. I, th- they, I think they turned the corner by the restoration. Yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah don't try to implement okay, a holy yeah. war, you know. And they, they, as a matter of fact, Nehemiah, the closest he gets to holy war, is applying it kind of similarly into the worshiping community. He says, "Don't go intermarry hmm. with unbelievers." That's 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 how he does holy war, <laughs> right? He says, um, "We right, need to keep he, the worshiping community whole." But they don't they don't try to lead a battle. They don't try to lead an army out against. Right. In fact, they're specifically forbidden. Right from from enacting rebelling against the Persians, rebelling against oh, right. the absolutely, and he they they do it through letter writing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, can we build a wall? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, so I think that that corner had already been turned. Now it's interesting because I think the apostles don't quite get it. Right, we've got you know we've got Peter cutting off Malchus's ear, and 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 at the beginning of Acts, you know, they say Jesus now is the time. Yeah. Now that you've risen from the dead, now now will you restore Israel to its glories? And Jesus says it's it's not about that anymore. It's about mm-hmm. the ends of the earth. Right, right. So Kuiper describes the church now as a colony of heaven, right? So that's mm-hmm. why we're a pilgrim people. We're in exile right now, and the kingdom of God is not of this world. Mm-hmm. So right now, what we're called to be is to be living in peace with this common kingdom or the common world, but at the same time anticipating, because the kingdom is the next world, that we're going to be minorities. We're going to be um, misunderstood by the world. We're not called to take over the world. And that's Kuiper, who many people think is a transformationalist who advances mm-hmm. the kingdom in an earthly way right now, which is just a complete misunderstanding. And he's really much in keeping with what you all are saying uh, about the nature of Israel's current warfare as merely a type of the kingdom of being the, of the next world. Yeah. Where, yeah, and when we yeah. we go to the New Testament, we look at the language of spiritual warfare. The enemy has changed. It's now d- very directly. You look at Ephesians five. Dark, the spiritual powers of darkness, you know, right. is, is are the is who are fighting against in the way they manipulate and and distort and deceive the nations. 
and the weapons of our warfare are faith, prayer, Mm-hmm. The word of God. The word of God, yeah. living righteously before the people, blessing the nation. Mm-hmm. You know, those are those are our weapons. Yeah. Um, because the orienting mode by which this kingdom is to expand itself. Now that Jesus is on the throne, that wasn't true before. Mm-hmm. It is true now. Now that Jesus is on the throne, and there is a heavenly kingdom, the basic mode of expansion is through discipling the nations. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's Matthew 28. Yep. So Jesus comes, he preaches the gospel to, for, to Canaanites and Syrophoenician people. It says your faith is greater than all of Israel. They're incorporated into his kingdom. Mm-hmm. We now proclaim the gospel under his charge, the Great Commission, uh, following his generals, the apostles. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. So we proclaim yep. the word around the face of the earth. Um, in this current time, how do we think about the time to come, the new heavens and new earth? What, does does Karim theology uh, have bearing or help us understand what's coming in the new heavens and new earth? When the heavens above, when the Jerusalem above descends. Yeah, I think it does. I think we have to, again, interpret it through the lens of mystery and um, uh, a heavy dose of mystery through mm-hmm. also the the desire of our king to show mercy to the whole world. I mean, we're told in Second Peter, there's an interesting parallel here with the passage you brought up earlier, that the, um, Abraham is not to go into the land yet mm-hmm. because the fullness of sin has not reached its peak. Yeah. The, the, and what that implies is, is this is a period of God's patience. This is a period that he has opened up for the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Hittites to mm-hmm. repent. Yeah, They're not going to repent it's going to result in judgment, but nevertheless, warfare is the end of a period of patiently God patiently waiting mm-hmm. for repentance. And in the same way, Second Peter three yeah. says, That's good. "The Lord is not tarrying because mm-hmm. He is, you know, asleep or lazy. He's tarrying because." This is the period he's opened up for repentance, and he desires everyone mm-hmm. to find it. Um, so we need to think a lot about that when we think about our enemies, that God is restraining judgment right. so that our enemies might come mm. to faith yeah. and repentance and be in the kingdom. Um, do we live Do we live like that? So, I mean, I think that's part of how we should, a big part of how we should think about the application of, the uh, of care and warfare through the lens of the Great Commission. Um, and the other thing is, of course, and this is less palatable to a modern ethic uh, and, and sensibility, is that, that, you know, as Paul, as you said, that God will judge, he will judge absolutely, and that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's always been in the hands of God, um, you know, Jude and Second Peter both use this language of uh, of warfare and say that is God's prerogative. You know, it, it, uh, not even the angel Michael presumed to pronounce a blas- pr- pronounce judgment on Satan. Um, it's God's job to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, God will do that. That's a good thing because it uh, is His loving way of crushing the oppression of the oppressor. But we do need to remember that that is yeah. coming and that judgment will will be done. I think decade, decades of sort of evangelical 
youth ministry teaching. That okay, I'm, we I'm have, intrigued. Yeah, okay. Where this is going? Um, that to get to the good news, you got to go through the bad news, mm. and the bad news is God's judgment. Now I know what people mean; they mean bad news for us, but I think we've painted God's just character as sort of the dark side of God and his grace is yeah, the light yeah, side. Yeah. And we've missed that God's justice is really good. And as a matter of fact, if you live in a place where there's injustice and yeah. you're subject to yeah. that, it's not hard to celebrate God's justice. It's more of a position of complacency and comfort and maybe, dare I say, a bit of exploitation on your own part where you start to fear justice and it becomes the bad thing, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And I, and I think we miss that. And one thing we talk about a lot in, in, one, in my class is we just pull out all that, because particularly when you're going through the prophets, prophets celebrate God's justice. They mm-hmm. celebrate. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. So if your problem with the harem ban is that God, it's, it's an expression of God's justice, then you do have a, a significant problem. I'm not here to untie that problem for you. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. You, you need to deal with the fact that God's justice is good, and it will be expressed over the face of the earth. Now, I just taught on Luke 12, and it's interesting to the, at the end of that chapter how Jesus basically makes an argument for the gospel that I, I don't know why I had missed it before, but he says, when the judge comes, it's over. Now, the, uh-huh. now, the, now you're going to get your sentence. But in the meantime, before the judge comes, I've got a plea bargain for you. <laughs> you can plea out, and it's a really good deal. Okay, Your sins will still be judged, but it's a really good deal. And, and that's, that's got to be our motivating energy. Yeah. As we're, as if, if you fear the final judgment, right, as we all should rightly do, if you fear it, then our motivating energy is to go out and proclaim this great plea deal. The mm-hmm. invitation of the king. Yeah, Amen. the invitation yeah. of the king. Yeah, and that's, that's right. Because the Christian and the Israelite is no different than the nations, technically speaking. Yeah. But they were called out and elected right. and sanctified by grace alone. Yeah. And I, I, and I think that's hinted at the Old Testament by Rahab yeah. and Gibeon and Ruth and mm-hmm. Naaman and Uriah. I think, I think the Old Testament's hinting at it already when David is not as righteous as the Hittite. Right. It's telling us already this was never about ethnicity in the first place. And explicitly place. in Deuteronomy 9, isn't it? Don't think of yourself as special, Israelite. Yeah, right? You're the least. Yeah. You're the least of these. Yeah. That's right. And I and I appreciate Paul. Uh, you know, in the last three years or so, the outcry in our society has been the demand for justice of all sorts and kinds. And and but we as Christians can understand it and embrace it and call for it more so than anyone else mm-hmm. because of the idea because of our doctrine of the holiness of God and. Mm-hmm. And there is something very comforting. My daughter uh, had a close friend who was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident by mm. a drunk driver. Oh. And the, the, the drunk driver came from a very wealthy family, hired a bunch of fancy lawyers, was able to kind of get out of this with minimal mm. effect. And she, wow. and she was just utterly destroyed because of sure. the injustice of what happened here. I mean, her, her friend was killed, mm-hmm. and the guy got a slap in the wrist. And I tried to assure her, Okay, yes, he got away with it in terms of the earthly courts, but in the mm-hmm. divine court of God, he will get away with nothing. Yeah. And there the justice of God cannot be warped or or argued against. I mean, it's, it's essentially you standing before the holy presence of God and doing the best you can to defend yourself. So either you can defend yourself and become condemned for all eternity or stand there by faith in Christ embrace him and be declared just but but paul's point i think is absolutely correct that um you know the key to our doctrine of salvation is really the justice of god that justice that we receive by grace Mm -hmm. as believers but it is a 
it is a vindication of God. I mean, the 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 secular command. This is the same as the old. You know, those Deuteronomy passages that you, that you know, child sacrifices, necromancy, all of this is what Deuteronomy referred to as an abomination. Mm-hmm. It's the Lord's holiness that's offended here, and that is what has to be vindicated. But our His people, our people. You know, they are the ones who are being oppressed and persecuted because of our faith. Our people need to be vindicated. That's uh, the the beauty of the justice of God. The the people who thought they were getting away with whatever are getting away with nothing. There is going to be a day in which they are going to have to pay uh, Mm -hmm. their dues, and that's when God's justice will be vindicated. His glory will be honored. His people will be vindicated, and, and it is just it is yeah. it is and 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 we also will rejoice in that justice as well so how do we love our neighbors in that i think has got to be just to kind of wrap it up with the question that we started we love our neighbors in that we long for their wickedness to be judged because it's a good expression of god's justice and we offer them the plea deal that by god's grace was offered to us that their sins are judged in full on christ mm-hmm and that he bears the sins on the cross. Let your final judgment already have happened so that when the final judgment comes for the world, you've you've already received your judgment in Christ. Amen. Right? Amen. So the gospel, to go back to my, and it, maybe it was, a, it was a, a cheap shot at evangelical youth group talks, but I'm, I'm thinking back on my own upbringing, I guess. Um, to go back, God's forgiveness of your sins is not that he just says, okay, you're one of mine. I guess I'll just forgive and forget. Yeah. It's not that. Your sins need to be judged, and that's why Christ has to die. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you deny that your sins need to be judged, then you deny why Christ had to die. Mm-hmm. So Christ dies taking upon himself the justice that we deserve. No. And so Amen. final judgment is implemented. In a way, there's a sense in which there's an already not yet to final judgment, right? And as mm-hmm. Christ goes to the cross, the final judgment for the elect is meted out on his head, yeah. right? Um, but in no place is God's justice negated or canceled, yeah. right? It has to happen because it's good and it's beautiful and it's part of his character. Well, that's the message of Romans three twenty-one to 23, isn't it? That mm. Christ comes to vindicate the righteousness of God because in the past and he has forbeared the passing of many sins. Right. And so the question is, how can God be a just judge if he has been patiently letting go of all these sins and not judging them. Well, now he has in Christ Jesus. When Christ comes and he died on the cross, all of those sins and all of the wrath that those sins deserve were actually put on Christ. And you could be participating in Christ's atonement if you have your faith in him. That's great. Beautiful. Amen. Just warms the heart, I'll tell you. Amen. Cause for worship. Um, thank you, brothers. Thanks for your time. This is great to have this conversation. Uh, we're, we're drawing near to the end of the series mm-hmm. um, uh, of tough texts, but we're going to revisit these down the road. We, we, we've done this series of about seven or eight or so, I believe, but we're going to come back to others. We keep having people reach out to us. Karen Ban was actually, this was one of the requests that we got out there from our, our listenership, but we'll return to these down the road as, as more um, turn up. And, and here's a little teaser. We talked a little bit about how about we take t- texts that aren't tough, at least aren't thought to be tough. Uh, they're kind of easy texts, but that they're often misunderstood. Yeah. And we need to think about how to do that in a fair and gentle way. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. Everyone's kind of smiling around the table. Well, it was now. presented as an idea. Now it's canon. It's <laughs> now I've said it. <laughs> you can edit this out. That's a good. That's a good way to make your ideas mm -hmm. actions. Um, so great being with you all. We are uh, in the Christmas and New Year season, and we wish the best for all of you all at home. Um, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, if you do review, I actually just saw a review the other day, and somebody said, "I love listening to this podcast. It's like." It reminds me of my seminary days where we'd sit around at lunch and the faculty would be there and would discuss things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I hope that's good. I hope that's a blessing and not a traumatic memory for you, uh, your seminary days. Um, but we love doing it and love having you here. So uh, please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. And um, we look forward to being with you all again uh, next week. Until then, take care. Bye.